Good afternoon. Welcome to the National Museum of the United States Air Force. Thank you for joining us today for the presentation by Dutch Van Kirk, the navigator of Enola Gay. Now I'd like to introduce the moderator for today's presentation, Mr. Ed Humphreys. Don't show them. Good afternoon. 2.45 a.m., 6th of August, 1945, the B-29 Super Fortress Enola Gay lifted off from Tinian Island bound for Hiroshima, Japan. Theodore Dutch Van Kirk guided the historic mission precisely with Bombardier Tom Farabee releasing the weapon at 8.15 a.m. Hiroshima time. Only 12 seconds later than planned. This amazing precision was planned and led by primarily by the 509th Group, CO, pilot Paul Tibbetts, Bombardier Major Tom Farabee, and Navigator Theodore Dutch Van Kirk. Dutch joined the Army Air Corps Aviation Cadet Program in October 1941. On April 1st, 1942, he received both his commission and navigator wings and transferred to the 97th Bond Group, the first operational B-17 fortress unit in England. The crew of the Red Gremlin also included Paul Tibbetts and Tom Farabee. From August to October 1942, the crew flew 11 B-17 missions out of England, including the first daylight bombing raid on occupied Europe. In October 1942, they flew General Mark Clark to Gibraltar for his secret North African rendezvous with the French prior to Operation Torch. In November, they ferried General Dwight D. Eisenhower and his staff to Gibraltar to command the North African invasion forces. Dutch returned to the States in June 1943 after flying a total of 58 missions in the Red Gremlin B-17. He served as an instructor navigator until reuniting with Tibbetts and Farabee for the 509th Composite Group out of Wendover Field, Utah, in late 1944. The group flew the B-29 Superfortress with Tibbetts as commander and Ben Kirk as the group navigator. From November 44 to June of 45, over 3,000 men and 15 B-29s trained continuously for the first atomic bomb drop. A 13-hour mission to Hiroshima began at 0245 Tinian time. By the time they rendezvoused with their accompanying B-29s at 0607 over Iwo Jima, the group was three hours from target area. As they approached the target, Dutch worked closely with the bombardier Tom Farabee to confirm the winds and aim point. The bomb fell away from the aircraft at 01517 Tinian time, and the end result was the end of World War II. In August 1946, he completed his service in the Army Air Corps as major. His decorations include the Silver Star, Distinguished Flying Cross, and 15 Air Medals. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my honor and privilege to introduce Major Dutch Van Here we go. Happy day. Ah. Thank you. I will do that. Thank you. Ah. There's Tony down there. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. In fact, thank you for coming out and hearing me today. The one of two things is happening. Either your air condition isn't working, <laughs> or you're, what, you're really a, an atomic enthusiast and want to hear about it, one of the two. Probably your air condition isn't working, but that's all right. Um, Ed described a few things that I did during my during the war, and uh, I, I want to mention them, even though they had no connection with the atomic bomb. I don't think they had any at all. And uh, little things that happened on various missions. Uh, we were flying one day. This is about our sixth mission over Europe. We had a colonel flying with us, Longfellow. I remember that name well. Longfellow had a B-25. He would take off after us, beat us to our destination, and he would be there chewing on us before we left and be there when we arrived, too, and this sort of thing. We hated the man and this sort of thing, that, but that's all right. And uh, But Longfellow was flying with us one day, and uh, we got attacked from head on, obviously. And uh, the pilot uh, shot us up, shot up the co-pilot, and you know, a few things of that type. And with uh, Tibbetts said, uh, wasted no time, he just bang, knocked him out. Now Tibbetts at the time was a major, and that sort of thing, knocking out a full colonel, and everything of that type. That wasn't a very wise idea. But when he got back, Longfellow said that was exactly the right thing to do. That was that that was one of our missions. That's when we got a new airplane, by the way. And, so uh, uh, we went through quite a few. But we finally got an airplane we called the Red Gremlin. It had the, the serial number ended in 4444. That was a lucky airplane. We flew the rest of our missions in 4444 without being shot down once. And that was exception. Uh, I'll also tell you a little bit about... Uh, taking Eisenhower and his staff from England down to North Africa, down to Gibraltar, I should say, uh, to command the North African invasion. This, these are history. There's not many people remember these things, you know, and this sort of thing. But in any event, we arrived down at, well, before that, two days before, we had taken Mark Clark down to England, from, from England, down to Gibraltar. And we were all armed to the teeth. I had a carbine, a submachine, I didn't know how to shoot them. <laughs> a carbine, a submachine gun, a 45 automatic, and uh, probably any other weapon the army could hang on me to, and everything of that type. We thought we would have to fly into North Africa and pick him up if things went wrong. Very fortunately, that did not happen. He braved the surf. He got on a submarine out there and then came back. Now, two days later, 
we got we were trying to take General Eisenhower down to North Africa. He's going to command the North African invasion. We didn't know that at the time. We arrive at a place called Hearn, England, H-U-R-N, on the southern coast of England. And then the bodies are delivered to us. We had six of our B-17s to go down there. We had six of our best pilots to go down there and this sort of thing. And I will never forget the morning that they came out there to take off. You could not even see the wingtips of your airplane. It was that thick and everything of that type. And now we get on a big, big semantic thing between Tibbetts and Eisenhower. And Tibbetts is saying, well, do you want to go, General? The general won't make the decision and everything of that type. And Eisenhower said everything of that type. Finally, Eisenhower made the decision. He says, son, he says, I have a war to fight down there, and i got to get there. He says, and I only have one way, and I'm not walking. <laughs> so he says, you better take off fast. Well, but that Tibbet says, okay, fellas, load up. Now, in her in England, I always remember out here sitting to this to the left of the runway, sticking up, I don't know how many feet, 100 feet, something of this type, a big old church steeple. I could just see myself wrapped around that church steeple. <laughs> it wasn't a pretty sight, believe me. But we, we line up on an astro compass heading, Tibbetts takes off, and he gets off the ground. So everything was fine. Now, you were all wondering what happened to all six of those airplanes. Six B-17s going down from England down to uh, Gibraltar. One of them didn't make it. He went into the Bay of Biscayne. He was on fire. We have no idea what caused that airplane to catch on fire. That was one airplane. A second airplane flown by a fellow gentleman named Summers, was attacked by German aircraft out over the Bay of Biscayne there. Shot up, and this sort of thing. They had to turn around and go back to base. He was fortunate. He had on a ready-made co-pilot named Doolittle. <laughs> How about that? How lucky can you be if you're going to get shot up that you have a co-pilot by the name of Doolittle? And that sort of thing. Well, okay then. We're down in Gibraltar. And you had to fly south of Gibraltar and then come north. We were trying to fool the Germans into thinking we were coming from the States. We didn't fool the Germans at all or anything of that type. But we, were, we came up north and everything. And then that night we had a big briefing of uh, uh, the invasion plans. And someone, I don't know who, but he warned me. He says, at such and such a time tonight, you'll be up at a certain point in the rock. And he says, you'll see one of the most stirring sights you will ever see in your life. And he was absolutely right. You're up, in the, up there in the rock. And the first thing you hear, you don't see our Navy. 
but you hear them talking to the British Navy in their code. I don't know what it is. I can't understand it or anything of that type. But anyhow, you could hear them talking to the British Navy, then suddenly all their lights go on. They were going through the Straits of Gibraltar that night, regardless of who argued with them or who talked to them. Now, this was a small fleet. It was a fleet that was going to land at Oran and Algiers. Uh, Patton had landed down at Casablanca and this sort of thing. But it was a very small fleet compared to what we had on D-Day, uh, what we would have had to invade Japan or anything of that type. But talk about being, I'm, I'm, I was a 21-year-old at that time. And talk about being impressed. I even thought the Navy knew what they were doing. That's all I could say. <laughs> the next morning, next morning was a little more interesting because we got awakened early and we were briefed. And they said, uh, you're going to be the escort for Spitfires going into Algiers. I said, oh, that's an interesting thing. That's just about the range for a Spitfire. You're right. Yes, absolutely. So anyhow, we take off. We all get big formation and this sort of thing. We're above the clouds, and we're going into Algiers. And I could hear all the RAF pilots from the, uh, in the Spitfires cursing me. Think, where's this damn Yank taking us? And so on and so forth. And finally, I called Tibbetts and I said, tell those guys to go 14 miles straight ahead Drop below the clouds. There's an airfield there. They should land on it, and I hope it's captured. <laughs> Timothy says, if you want to tell them that, you call and tell them. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so Timothy didn't call or anything else. Well, these were our adventures leading up to uh, things that happened that welded us together in North Africa. Paul Tibbetts was our cook. You will never imagine him cooking a fried chicken in the waist of a B-17. And today, if you did it, you'd be court-martialed. They'd say you were crazy and everything of that type. And as those days, we didn't, didn't really care and everything. So we, we were there and everything else. And eventually then we all break up and we come back to the States. And then later on, Paul Tibbetts calls me to join the atomic mission. Now you're expecting great things. Hell, I don't. We, we just trained to drop atomic weapons and everything of that type. We formed a, with our unit out of Wendover, Utah. We had 15 airplanes to drop atomic weapons, all trained and signed and sealed to drop the atomic weapons. And Paul was right away. If you've seen a, one of the videotapes of Paul, and you want to in it, he's asked, "Will you ask who was going to drop the first atomic bomb?" His answer was, "Yeah, damn it, it was me." I was going to, I was a commanding officer. I was going to drop the first atomic bomb. 
And that, and that was the, the way he ran the whole outfit. I did not find out I was going to drop an atomic bomb until February of that year. And then I found out by accident. How did you find out? You saw a bunch of people running around who were atomic physicists. And if atomic, these people were running around, they were all atomic physicists. You were going to drop something that was going to wipe out a city and everything. You put two and two together, and you soon figured out that you were going to drop an atomic weapon. Now, if you did, you kept your mouth shut about it. Because if Tibbetts found you talking about it, he'd transfer you up to the Aleutian Islands, where you could talk to the Chinese, all you, the, the, the uh, Eskimos, all you wanted to. They couldn't understand you. You couldn't understand them. So you're even. While we were at, uh, in, uh, on Tinian, and we trained, we went over there. I got, I got there on June 25th, my son's birthday, by the way. And, uh, and uh, we continued to drain to drop atomic weapons. Well, how did we do it? We had bombs that we called dummy bombs. And these dummies were just exactly that. They were the same size, weight, and shape as the atomic bomb, except they were loaded with high explosives. You took one of them, you went up to Japan, you stooged around, you dropped it under conditions that were exactly the same as what you expected to find when you dropped the atomic bomb. And that was our training. All of our crews flew at least six of those missions and everything else as further training. And now I'll, I'll speed this along then and everything else. <coughs> we come along toward the end of, end of August. And finally we receive word that Harry Truthman has okay dropping the atomic bomb. We had tested the one in New Mexico already. The one tested in New Mexico was uranium, it was a plutonium bomb. We dropped a U-235 bomb. One of the things you do not forget is we dropped two different atomic bombs over Japan. The U-235 bomb was much more harder to maintain a chain reaction and had to be ultra, ultra pure before it would do so. The uranium bomb was much easier to maintain a chain reaction. And once you got it started, you couldn't stop it. It bomb dropped on Hirsch and on Nagasaki was a uranium bomb. That was the second one dropped. All subsequent bombs were uranium bombs. I think to this day, that's true. They're still uranium bombs. The Japanese thought they were working with U-235. To this day, I believe that the Japanese thought we only had one bomb. We only had one U-235 bomb. That's the reason they did not react 
when we dropped the bomb at Hiroshima. It wasn't until the second one was dropped on Nagasaki that they figured out we could make more than one. And they reacted to that then. I'm getting ahead of my story. Uh, Truman approved the fuse of the bomb as soon as the weather was okay. That day was going to be June the 6th, 1945. And everyone now expects all Hollywood to break loose. The star is going to arrive on the show and everything of that type. And Tom Cruise is going to drop the atomic bomb and everything of that type. <laughs> it was not that way at all. Back in those days, you did not have automatic navigation and everything. You had typically looked at me and says, what time do you want to drop that bomb, Dutch? And I says, well, you better damn well drop it in the morning. We don't have lights in this field. And that sort of thing. That, that was, that was our deciding factor. He said, okay, you work it backwards until what time, time we should take off. The time we took off was 2.45 a.m. Everything in the Air Force started at 2.45, for heaven's sake. I'll take anything to get you out of bed. <coughs> now, we had a briefing the day, be, two, the day before. And it was, you know, you knew it was going to be a big one. You had Tommy guns, guys out there with Tommy guns and everything, guarding you against it. I don't know what they thought we were going to do. We couldn't get off the island anyhow, that sort of thing. But we had guys out there with Tommy guns guard, guarding us at, at, the, at the debriefing and everything of that type. The debriefing went according to normal. You know, you get a briefing, so what? And everything. You're going to take off and you're going to drop a bomb. There are a lot of things that could have gone wrong with our U-235 bomb. General Farrell, the general, I might say, I'm sorry, Captain Farrell, Navy Captain Farrell. That's wrong. Navy Captain Parsons decided that he could arm the bomb in flight. Why? Because we lost more airplanes off at the end of the runway over on Tinian than we did over Japan. They, they, one engine went full, full power and they went on down the runway and they came to the end of it and they go off the end of the runway into the Pacific Ocean. We lost more airplanes at the end of the runway than we did over Japan. So he decided that he, he was going to ignore Captain, uh, uh, yeah. Vicky, help me. Parson. No, no, the, the, the general in charge. General Farrell. Farrell, yeah. Thank you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> general, he, he decided he was going to ignore General Farrell and he would arm the bomb in flight, which is what he did. I'll never forget him and the, he and, and uh, his assistant went back into Bombay. Now, I, the fact that we had an atomic bomb on board did not bother me. The fact that they were back there playing around with black powder did. <laughs> he came out of that Bombay, his hands were black. The machine threads were finely threaded and everything of that type. And he had it all over his hands and everything of that, <coughs> that type. 
but he armed the bomb in flight. We flew, we took off at 2.45, as I said. Now, one another point I want to make. The press was not on the island. They were nowhere to be seen. But the, everybody was taking pictures and recording and everything of that type. What were they doing? They were recording for the Manhattan Project. The good general didn't want to be briefed by, 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 by Congress if he failed. That's all I had. That, that was my theory anyhow. So anyhow, that, that was the reason for all that. If the plane was lit up by keg lights. You'd, you'd have thought, I don't know what you'd have thought. Something, something special was coming, fellas. I don't know what, but you should be prepared for it. And so on and so forth. So, so anyhow, he, he armed the bomb in flight. And then we took off. And he did that until while we flew up to Iwo Jima at low altitude. I know because I always got sick of low altitude and everything of that type. But we flew up there in low, at low altitude. And then we started our climb up, up to, uh, up to bombing altitude. Our bombing altitude was 31,000 feet, as high as we could get. Every once in a while, you know, you find people that stretch the imagination a little bit. And uh, there's one guy, I just read his uh, obituary, from Birmingham, Alabama. He said he was flying high cover for us. <laughs> How he was doing it, it was beyond me. We were as high as we could get and would have gone higher if we could have got there. But he was flying high cover for us and everything of that type. So uh, we go up there and we climb up the altitude. Before we pass that 10,000-foot mark, Norris Jefferson goes back in the bomb bay, makes the final adjustment on the bomb. He was connect, taking out the green plugs and putting in the red plugs. Now the bomb is also electrically armed. Anything can happen. We went in and crossed over Shikoku, crossed over a little of the streets of, the, of the Japan to the east of Tokyo, made a left-hand turn, and blinders were lined up on Hiroshima. And all, I, could, I pointed out to Fairby, I says, do you see the target? Tom says, I can't see a damn thing. I says, do you see the target? That's, that's that damn bridge down there. Then he says, oh, that bridge. Now I see the target. <laughs> that was Tom Perry for you, though. <laughs> so we went in, dropped the bomb, and that was all there was to it. Tibbets immediately snapped off the, the, the uh, automatic pilot and put the plane in a 60-degree bank to make a 180-degree turn. Just 60-degree bank is about like that now. You're turning pretty damn fast. But Tibbetts always told the pilots, if you could not get it around in less than a minute, I don't want you in this outfit. So that's the way it was. It was a 60-degree bank, lose 2,000 feet in the turn, run away from the bomb, to put as much distance between you and the bomb as you possibly can. Now, I'm sure in the present day they can have better ways of dropping atomic bombs 
but we were just running. People want to know, does that maneuver have a name? I say, hell yes, it's called getting away from the bomb. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, no question about it. And we come around, and after we, after, after we level, just about the time we level out, we get the biggest shock wave we, I had ever seen in my life. It rattled the plane and everything else. Uh, the plane, and after a little while, Tibbets called and says, is the plane still flying? Yes, it was, by God, and everything else. We got away with it, so we turned around to take a look at what had happened. We made, made a, continued our turnaround. The next thing we saw was that a large white cloud you've seen uh, pictures of up well above our altitude already, up above 50,000 feet already. And uh, that cloud was so high <coughs> that we could see it from 267 miles away and 15,000 feet. That's how high and everything else that energy has sent that cloud. Well, you look down at the base of that cloud, and the entire city of Hiroshima just looked as though it was covered with thick black smoke and dust. It reminded you of a pot of boiling oil. That's about the nearest description I can describe. We could not see anything, could not make any visual observation, so I flew a little bit in the southeast quadrant, and we turned around home. A few comments. Number one, we had no opposition whatsoever, in spite of what Jake Beezer says in his book. We had no opposition. The Japanese, unfortunately, at that time of the war, had no opposition to high-flying enemy airplanes. You could go up there and fly any place you wanted to. So we we just decided to hell we may as well go home, which is what we did. And we get back there, and the only thing I can say is that there are more generals there and admirals than I'd ever seen in one place in my life. <laughs> if the Japanese had known about it and hit, hit us with a bomb at that point, at that time, we would have lost the entire Air Force. Spots was there, LeMay was there, they were all there, and everything like that. One thing I should tell you about, at our briefing, they briefed us we were going to go out and drop an atomic bomb. Then they told us to go back and get some sleep. <laughs> now, how they expected us to do that is absolutely beyond me. Tibbetts didn't sleep, Fairby didn't sleep, I didn't sleep, and Fairby won the money in the poker game. That's all I can say. <laughs> okay. A, a little bit later on, we, we, we arrived and we had a debriefing and so on and so forth. But uh, an it, interesting thing happened. Marsh Jefferson had some Navy friends over there, and they met him at, at the end of the, at the, uh, his tent, uh, when he got back. And then they invited him to go to their mess hall. They went to mess hall, had a nice dinner. At the end of the dinner, they're sitting around talking about what they are all doing in the war, to win the war. It comes to Morris Jepson's turn. He says, we won the war today. They thought he was a damn liar. 
until the next day when they read the paper and saw that we had dropped an atomic bomb, they no longer thought we were liars and everything of that type. Uh, the next mission, the mission to Hiroshima. As I said, we dropped a uranium bomb. This uranium bomb had a compression uh, factor and everything of that type. Worked every bit as good as a U-235 bomb did, and we dropped it on Hiroshima. The mission, the mission that day was to drop the bomb on Kokura, which was supposed to be the first target hit. Kokura, they could not see the bomb. They made, made a pass, Behan says, no drop. Second pass, no drop. Third pass, no drop. Fourth pass, no drop. Come on, where's he going here? And this sort of thing. So they finally decided to go on to Hiroshima. At Hiroshima, they lined up on a radar run, which they were not supposed to do, by the way. We were told that we had to drop the bomb visually. If we could not drop the bomb visually, we were supposed to take it out and drop it in the ocean. Do not bring it back to the base with you. <laughs> and I guess that made sense by God and everything at that time. But they said they... They, they lined up on a radar run. At the last minute, Behan saw the ground. He says, I dropped the bomb visually. He knows he didn't. We know he didn't. But what the hell? The war's over. Why worry about it and everything else? So that was the second bomb. Uh, later on, I was commanded to go to the uh, bikini test where they line them all up and they put a battleship painted red out here in the middle of it and everything else. Now, how in the hell a bombardier could miss that target is beyond me. But he did. <laughs> he missed it. He was 1,500 feet to the left and short. LeMay came into the, the, the party they were having that night and looked around and says, well, here come three people that'll tell me where that bomb dropped. We were trying to get out of there before we encountered LeMay, because he didn't want to give bad news, by the way, and this sort of thing. But we finally told him where the bomb dropped, and we were assigned to get out of there yet that night and fly the pictures back to Washington as though they needed them, that sort of thing. Well, that's all I had to say. That, that was my atomic career. I got out. I went back to college. I went to work for DuPont. I think it was a successful career, wasn't it, Vicky? And everything else. I was a vice president there when I, when I retired and this sort of thing. So all in all, it was a good, it was a very good life. And now I'm going to shut my mouth. And Ed, you have, you're going to take some pick, you're going to get some questions now, right? That's my mouthpiece here. Test, test, check, check, check. These are um, some questions you folks sent in, um, Dutch, so I'm just going to read them off and let's see. I hope let's, I understand. Let, let's hear what they want to know. What was the name of the bomb the Enola Gay dropped? Little boy. Easy one. 
That was easy. Well, who named it? Dan DeFarno. I just made that one up. Uh, maybe the scientist did. I have no idea. Okay. Um, among the crew, were there bets if the device would work or not? Yes. Oh, and I, I lost a lot of money that day, by the way. <laughs> Two days before we dropped the bomb, we sent Chuck Sweeney up to uh, test the... Uh, Radar proximity fuse. This bomb dropped to 18,000 feet where it exploded according to a radar proximity fuse. Why do we do that? Because it, we wanted a, the blast effect to come down like this and spread out. If we had hit, had hit the ground, all we'd have done was take a big hole in the ground. We wanted to get that blast effect coming out. So we exploded it at 1,800 feet. Now, Swinney went up and tested the radar proximity fuse two days before he dropped the bomb. He dropped the bomb with the radar proximity fuse. All the telescopes trained on the new bomb. Bomb dropped into the ocean, unexploded. It gave you a lot of confidence. Believe me, it did. This sort of thing. Right, well, his second... So, I, anyhow, I was taking all the bets I could get that this bomb was going to be a dud. So did, you, I, did I lose my shirt? That's all I can that, that answers the second question. He wanted to know which way you, you went. Um, um, was it a difficult mission to fly? It was a very easy mission to fly. We had no enemy opposition. I did not get shot at. That, that was a big break and everything else. So nobody was shooting at you or anything. They had no flak that could reach us, no fighters that could reach us or anything else. The Japanese, let me just put it this way. The Japanese were a licked people before we ever dropped the atomic bombs. We practically burned Japan down before we ever dropped the atomic bombs. The atomic bombs did not win the war. It just gave Japan the excuse to get out of the war and save face. It was not the reason. It was the excuse. All right, Dutch. Uh, were you ever a Cub Scout or Boy Scout growing up? Yes, I was, unfortunately. Never mind. <laughs> This one just says thanks. That's good. Uh, this one was already answered in your talk. Uh, flight path and fuel stops. What now? They want to know about flight, your flight path and fuel stops from Wendover to the Marianas. Oh, my God. <laughs> We're stopping every time. Well, from Wendover, we went to uh, Travis, to Hawaii, to Johnson, to Kwajalein, to uh, to uh, to Tinian. How many stops is that? Did you ever get lost? Hell no. 
Not that I'd admit, anyhow. It either, if you were a navigator, it either paid to be lucky or to be good. I was lucky. Uh, this one you kind of answered. He wants to know about the uh, entering the dive of the turn after the release. I can't understand you. Uh, he was asking about, uh, we hear about the airplane entering a dive and a turn after release. How did it it was, was not a dive. We just lost 2,000 feet. Okay. Just to build up speed. It was done to build up speed more than anything else. What two items of personal importance did you have on your mission? None. You could not, you are not allowed to take anything of personal importance on a mission. Have you been back to Japan? Oh, I forgot to tell you about that. And they also went on, did, 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 did the Japanese hate you? Some of them did, I'm sure, and everything else, but most of them did not. Uh, after the war, uh, the, the uh, uh, people that made the bomb decided that we should go up to Japan to see what effects it had in Japan. So we flew up to Tokyo to pick up some of the Japanese people who had worked on the Japanese atomic project. Remember, everybody in those days had an atomic project. The Japanese had one, we had one, uh, the Russians had one. The Russians were the most people that gave us the most uh, espionage problems and everything that time. Every once in a while you found a dead Russian someplace in Chicago, but that's all okay, too. And everything that time. Uh, but uh, what was the question again? I, I think that's good. Uh, uh, if you had returned to Japan... Uh, you didn't go back there. Yeah. Did you well, go back we, to Hiroshima? We, we flew up to Tokyo. We collected the Japanese people that were working on their atomic weapon. Uh, we got in the airplane and we flew down to Hiroshima. No place to land near Hiroshima. So we went on to Tokyo, where we, uh, to uh, Nagasaki, where we landed. The thing I remember most about landing at Nagasaki, it was a dirt field. We were landing a C-47 on it. Uphill, by the way. The minute we landed, the Japanese officer came out to present us his sword. I don't know who got it. Somebody did. And this sort of thing. And then they gave us two, they were about 1927 model Chevrolet trucks to take us in to the city of Hiroshima. We got into the Chevrolet trucks. One of the funniest pictures, I, I have a picture of this, by the way. One of the funniest pictures I have is Paul Tibbetts explaining to a Japanese guy who doesn't understand English how to fix his Chevrolet truck. <laughs> and everything else. Also, I will point out that one of the most pointed pictures I have in my collection is one on, on there, and we're standing near a, a bus stop in Nagasaki, and we're just, I don't know, 
Sui debris. And everything else. And the bus picks up and stops. And this Japanese soldier gets off the bus looking for his home. Now that, folks, is sad. You know, it could have been me looking for my home in Northumberland, Pennsylvania, and this sort of thing. He had no home left. It was gone. And everything else. That is sad. That is a reason why we should prevent war. Amen. Um, were you escorted by other bombers? Uh, we had Chuck Sweeney along uh, to drop instruments. He flew, we, we flew no, number one, and he flew number two on the left-hand side. We broke off to the right, he broke off to the left, and that sort of thing. And then we had George Marquardt along to take pictures of the explosion. So we had two other airplanes with us up there that day in order to take pictures and to drop instruments. I don't know what those instruments were called. The scientists devised them to measure the force of the blast. I call them bang meters. <laughs> That's as good a name as any, for heaven's sakes, and this sort of thing. But anyhow, he, we had a radio contact between our airplane and his airplane when the bomb broke the, fell out of the plane and broke the radio contact the instruments automatically fell out of Chuck's plane and everything else. And then he broke off to the left and everything else. All right, we've got another one here. Um, did you have Doppler radar altimeters? I didn't even know what they were. <laughs> if not, how did you calculate wind and drift at, al at altitude? The old-fashioned way. This, this, make a turn this way, make a turn this way. Get it on three headings and get a get get a good get a good wind from it. That that really was the old fashioned way too. I used celestial navigation as long as it was dark. When I no longer could use the celestial navigation, I would shoot the star Arcturus. Arcturus is unique. It is almost always within sixty degrees of the North Pole. And any time you shoot Arcturus, it's a very easy calculation to get a, get a latitude. And you can get a latitude and a good speed line from it. That's how I used to dare. And I was six seconds off. Paul Tibbetts said I was 12 seconds off. His watch never was right. <laughs> this question's already been answered about methods, uh, celestial or pressure pattern. Yep. Pressure pattern, right? I never, I never, what's pressure pattern? <laughs> what were your thoughts when you realized just how powerful uh, the bomb was? Well, you have second, you have various thoughts. You're going to kill a lot of civilians, obviously. You regret that. But if you're in a war, you have to have the guts to fight the war to win it.
In the war against Japan, we were amassing an amazing invasion fleet. If we would have had to invade Japan, we were going to incur lots and lots and lots and lots of casualties. No question about it. They knew we were coming. They had their guns zeroed right in on the landing strips and everything else. We would have lost lots of men. Uh, dropping the atomic bomb was a lesser of two weevils, in, to my way of thinking. Were you with the 8th Air Force in England or the 15th Air Force in Italy before you were sent to, to the Pacific? Yes. <laughs> Both. Both, Both right? absolutely, yeah. yep. Is it true that every plane has its own personality? I don't know. I don't think so. I, I, th I think they back in the old days they did, in the early days. But maybe not later on, I don't think so, no. I just found out you, had a, you flew in boxcar quite a few times as well. Oh, yeah, I flew them all. When did you know or find out it was a nuclear mission? I found out about uh, February of that year, 45. And I told you how. You know, you've got a lot of people running around in their uniforms, uh, obviously nuclear scientists. Uh, there's one guy running around. Uh, he's from Harvard. And he was deputy commander of our uh, Crescent Project and everything else. Now, if you saw him running around, his picture had been on Time magazine as one of our outstanding young nuclear physicists just months before. It, you didn't have to have to you didn't have to add two and two to know that you were working on atomic energy. Now, the only question was, did you want to stick with it? That's it. Yep. All right. Which plane did you enjoy more? Uh, the B-17 or the B-29? The 29. But hey, one of them is pressurized, the other isn't. <laughs> My son with me today is eight years old. Uh, what would you like him to take away most from your mission? Um, I.e. to share with his kids and his grandkids. Don't have another war. You're, you do not win anything, I don't think. You do not win anything in a war. What have we won in Iran? I don't know. They're still killing everyone over there, for Christ's sakes. And uh, what have we won in Afghanistan? They're still killing everyone over there. And everything of that type. And I, I, you know, I come from different sections of the country. In California, they couldn't care less about being military, about ROTC or anything of that type. In Georgia, if you don't belong to ROTC, you're not living. 
that sort of thing. It's an entirely different attitude and everything like that. I prefer the George attitude myself. This is a good lead to the next question. Um, do you feel the military is still a good career choice for young people today? I really do, but I can't get my daughter to agree. <laughs> well, she agrees now, but she won't send her two sons. Dear Dutch, uh, what other actions did you do before your historic flight over Hiroshima? Well, you think you covered quite a bit of that, but I, I yeah, think, we did. I think you should touch base on the on the uh, mission in North Africa when you bombed some kind of an airfield, Luftwaffe airfield down there. Oh, I forgot about that too. Yeah. Uh, when we got to North Africa. We had six B-17s down there, and uh, I guess it was our third day. Tibbets went to a fellow, I'll forget his name, the British group captain, and says, group captain, uh, I got six B-17s out here. I should be able to do some good. Would you like me to bomb something? <laughs> the guy says, oh, yes, we would love for you to... Drop bombs on Berserte. Where the hell's Berserte? I don't know. And everything of that type. So anyhow, Berserte was a the port the Germans were bringing almost all their material in uh, to supply the African Corps during those days. I don't know how they ever brought anything in there we were bombing it so often. But in any event... The guy says, oh, yeah, well, you, you should bomb Bizerte. So Tibbet says, well, I need gas and I need bombs. The guy gave us a bomb trailer and says the bombs are down on the ship. We went down to the ship, carried our own bombs out to the airplane, our own fuel out to the airplane. I'm the only guy that ever refueled a B-17 out of five-gallon cans. <laughs> I say, I'm not the only guy, but there's a, there's, there's a bunch of, there's about ten of, six other airplanes, 60 people, that also refuel out of five-gallon cans. Then Tibbets called us together and says, we're going we're gonna to bomb Bizzardi. He says, I don't know where we're going to bomb bombs. So he says, three of our airplanes will drop the bombs over here on this there, and then the other three will go up, drop the bombs on the on the uh, on the uh, docks. And later on, we found out that we had dropped a bomb on the mess hall of the German mess when they're in there eating dinner, and we got most of them. We didn't have to we didn't have to bomb to catch them in the air. Is that all? I think we just got a couple. We have time for a couple more. I think we do. Have you ever had any negative experiences from people when they find out your role? Yes. (laughs) 
they, they, they started it. I don't even know what this means. Uh, do you remember the MGTO of the Enola Gay? The MGTO? Now, who, who did this question? What does that mean? Takeoff weight. Oh, um, take weight. Oh, of the 17? No, the B-29. The 29? That, that was one of our other, other big worries. We were very heavily overloaded the day we took off with the atomic bomb. We loaded the atomic bomb in the front bomb bay, and then we had to load a bunch of fuel in the back bomb bays in order to get our weight balance right. We were at a gross weight of 155,000 when we took off that day. Normal gross weight of a B-29 taking off over there at that particular time was about 135,000. So we were very heavily overloaded. If it had been anybody but Tibbetts flying that airplane, I would not have gone. I can tell you that. Nah, I take that back. There's some other pilots in our group. But if Bob Rose had been flying that airplane, I would not have gone. <laughs> not, not me. No question about it. I think this is, we'll make this the last question. What was uh, Jacob Beezer's job? I tried to figure that out. Uh, no, uh, the bomb exploded at 1,800 feet on a radar proximity fuse, which was on a very operated on a very obscure frequency. If the Japanese had got onto that frequency by mistake or by air or any other way possible, they could have exploded the bombs in the airplane. That was not a good idea and everything else. So Jake was along to guard the frequencies and everything else on our flight and everything like that. He was in the back of the airplane. He could not see out. He's written, he wrote a book, by the way. He says, some Japanese airplane came up, flew alongside of us a little while, did a slow roll around us, and then left. I don't know what he was smoking. <laughs> I wasn't smoking the same thing, that's all I'll say. We had no every opposition.